Um, I want to acknowledge, I loved that Dale was up here scurrying around this morning, and I, because I love that that was a visual that, well, these transient circumstances we have bring into light the reality of the body of Christ among us, and that we are not just a guy or a girl or a couple people who stand in front of you on a Sunday morning, but there's so many gifts and talents used, and sometimes when a cable's broken or whatever that was, that comes into light, that before Karen or Josh stands up here, there's 15 people setting up chairs and sound systems and tea and coffee, and then even it starts the Sunday school kids' church teachers and welcomers and creche and all that. And this circumstance we're in, with its challenges, brings so much to light the reality of all the gifts and talents that are needed to make church work in here and in the community. So, Dale, thanks for giving us a great example of that this morning. I'm going to try not to do that this too much this morning because... um, with a mic that's inseparable from my body, you don't really want to hear me coughing, so if I look like I'm about to go red, just <clears throat> cancel the mic. Just mute me or I'll try to mute myself. We are in, stick up the first slide there, Glenn. <clears throat> we are in, I'm going to stick this back here, actually, if it will go. We are in <clears throat> this series, Jesus Over Everything, looking at, I'm going to get rid of everything, uh, looking at Colossians, um, this incredible book. Um, and as I, read, as I read through Colossians, just like going through Nehemiah, um, I'm reminded again and again how amazing and life-filled and practical application-creating, that's a horrible statement, um, practical the Word of God is. There's so much in it, and I pray there'll be stuff in it for us to take into this week. Um, but before, before I get into the second half of Colossians chapter 1, I want to do, Ali did a bit of context for Colossians, um, and I want to do a bit more context, because I think there's important context going into today, and in context that is important just in the state of the world we're in. So Colossians is a book from Paul, that from last week. Uh, they're quite a faithful church. Um, so he writes to them, commending them. So he starts the, the, the book in chapter 1 talking about their faith and their love and their hope. It's a bit different than Corinthians, where he basically starts challenging them right away again and again and again. So they're a faithful church. But here's something really cool that we see in the start of Colossians, chapter 1, which Ali talked about yesterday. Paul, in all his letters to the churches over Asia and Greece and Rome, writes prayers for the people, all these new Christians all over the world. And in none of these prayers does he ever pray for their circumstances. Not once. He never prays for their safety. And I'm going to get to that's We can do that. This is, it's okay to do this. But <laughs> he never prays for their safety. He never prays for their health. He never prays for their freedom from earthly masters out of slavery. He never prays anything about how easy or hard their life is or how poor or rich they are. And that's quite interesting. But it's even more interesting in this letter. Because the church at Colossae was about to be hit by an earthquake. Paul didn't know this. This was going to happen in two or three, historians would say it happened about two or three years after this letter. It was about to be hit by an earthquake that would totally destroy the city. 
So the Spirit could have revealed that to Paul. Like the Spirit revealed to Agabus there was a famine coming in the land and help the people help other people. The Spirit could have um, revealed that to Paul, but it doesn't. And this is really important, again, not that we should pray about these things, but think about our world today and the devastation that we're seeing in Syria and Turkey. The people in Colossae were about to have their, stick up this next slide, actually, were about to have their city hit by an earthquake, and it would never be rebuilt again. It was completely destroyed. And the people who survived would have to take whatever belongings they had left and flee to two, Laodicea and one other neighboring city. And yet, what is Paul's prayer for them? Not health or wealth or safety, but we heard this last week. The knowledge of God's will, wisdom, fruitfulness, that they would be fruitful, and these are pretty good ones, endurance, they're going to need it, patience, they will definitely need it, and joyful thanks, thanks that are beyond circumstances, gratitude that's beyond whatever is going to happen. And this is so, I mean, even as we're singing those songs this morning, and the reality in our family and in Josh's family that surrounds the reality of those songs, this is so important. Because trials will come. Hardship will come. We live in finite, minute, broken bodies. We live in a society that's obviously broken and crooked. It's affected by our sin. It's affected by generations of sin. The world is crumbling around us. But... We also live with eternal hope, eternal peace, unstoppable joy. And that's the thing that Paul tries to keep in our heads. And this is what's thinking about this this week. I thought the reality is what will speak, <clears throat> what will speak of our hope and the real reality of that more clearly? Will a people who pray and are saved from everything, Lord, I lost my job, give me the other one, bing, Lord, I need this bill paid, pay for it, bing, Lord, I'm sick, bing. A people that are always healthy, always wealthy, always satisfied, will that speak of the reality of an eternal God? Or will a people that are full of love and joy and hope and thankfulness and generosity and selflessness and care and watching and listening no matter what's going on and especially in Turkey and Syria and Ukraine right now when their world is crumbling around them how powerfully is it to see the people of God come alive in generosity and hope and joy in those situations will that not be one of the most powerful testaments of a real and eternal hope. And as I said, that does not mean we shouldn't pray for healing. That does not mean we shouldn't pray for relief. Paul, although he doesn't do it in these letters, individually he does pray for people. Peter and the other apostles and, and many others prayed for healing and raised people from the dead. Of course we should. But his priority in these letters is that they have hope and joy and perspective 
to pass on, not wealth and health and prosperity to brag about. Because these current bodies, these current circumstances are a whisper, um, a puff of smoke compared to the eternal reality we're going to have, compared to the place we're going to be when we meet our king of kings. So that's how Paul starts the letter of Colossians. This, we won't go read it again, but this incredible prayer, and every book has these incredible, uplifting, empowering, encouraging prayers for God's people. But it's not about their circumstances. It's, how it's, it's giving them power in life to live no matter their circumstances. Context. And then we're about to enter the next half of just the first chapter of, uh, the first chapter of Colossians. And I'm going to tell you three things that I think Paul says in this. And he says more than that, but your brains can't even take three. Your brains can maybe take one. So my prayer for you is that you take one of these things, one of these phrases, stick it in a socket in there and take it home with you for the week. And these are the three things. We are rescued from darkness to light. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus, look at Jesus, and finally the phrase that I'm sure does not stick with you well this morning, it is not about you. Yes, it is. <laughs> so that's what we're going to look at, and as I say, my prayer is that just one of those will grab you. One of those will sit with you on Tuesday morning or Thursday afternoon this week. So we are rescued from darkness into light. And I'm going to read this part of the passage again. It's going to come up here again. Verse 12, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. I think this first point is so important because on an earthly level, through these puny, feeble eyes, we totally underestimate the reality of what Jesus has brought us to and from. When you think of darkness and light, good and evil, what's the image? I'm just going to let an image pop into your head. Darkness and light, good and evil. What's the image that pops into your head? We think of dramatic differences. We think of an image, and I'm going to show you one in a second, where good and evil are so obviously different that they're un, you, know, you couldn't help but recognize them, right? Evil is the grouchy, dark shirt, Look, no, Josh, you're in there. Dark clothes, grouchy face, cackling laugh, yeah? Evil. Good, bright clothes, smiling face. Well, there's, you popped it up ahead of time. That's all right. These are the images we think about. Snow White. And I think children's programming has a lot to answer for in not 
in being counterproductive in preparing our children for facing the real evils and real dangers in life. Because good hardly ever looks like Snow White, and evil almost never looks like the witch. Although they put that thing in the middle, it looks like the apple. It's actually quite beautiful. Because the problem is, and stick on the next slide, Paul tells us, no wonder Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And we fall for his masquerade all the time. Darkness doesn't look dark. It looks pretty good. It looks like a juicy apple that I know that's better, but that candy-covered one would totally satisfy me right now. And good often looks like hard work. It doesn't look la, 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 and birds twinkling and dwarves. I don't know if there's a dwarf. Is there dwarves in that one? I don't know. I'm a long way from those. What about the way we speak? All of us. That's just a funny story, you know? I mean, it's just, I, I just want to tell you this little thing about my, my neighbor or, or my friend, and you know, you know them too, and, and I know they'd be, you wouldn't say this, I know they'd be so embarrassed or probably angry if they knew we were saying it, but come on, I've started or you've started, so come on, you've got to tell me it. Gossip is so attractive because it satisfies our needs. It makes us feel better about ourselves. But gossip is deadly. Gossip in the Bible is described as deadly for relationships, and it's described as deadly for our souls. The Bible speaks so strongly about it. What about the way we speak? Is darkness and light often unobservably different? So close. What about the way we act or don't act? You know, you know it would be so much better to stop and help that person or, or stop and, and really ask that person you know how they're doing. Or you know it would be better to speak, you know, that thing's happening and I should really speak out about it. Or, or that thing is going on and I'm compelled or I'm urged to give some money toward it, but I don't have the time to go out of the way for this, or I just can't be bothered. I don't have the energy today to speak about that. Or there are so many more ways. Think about energy bills. There's so many more ways to spend my money. Or there's, I want that new pair of shoes. I want that new thing. It's so subtle how we act or don't act and how we do or don't follow Jesus into life and into abundance the places that he calls us. And I was challenged by this because he's calling us into abundance in it for us to, to, to experience life as we step into these situations. But he's also calling us to act so that darkness and evil don't prevail. We know this quote, stick it up there. Go ahead. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Darkness, evil, even to the scale of wars, is the reality. Doesn't happen in one fell swoop. It happens with a thousand complacent or selfish or ignorant or lazy decisions. 
darkness creeps in. Or what about the things we watch? I'm watching the show and I know it's kind of racy or I know it's maybe brutal. There's zombies. I remember talking about zombie movies. <laughs> My brain doesn't need to see that. Or I know the content's really not appropriate, but the storyline I mean, the storyline is so good. Or the characters, they just suck you in. Or it's so funny, and when I get home, I just need to, I just need to shut off. I just need to. Or I'm, I'm watching this, and it's, or I've just clicked on it, and it's just scantily clad women or men. You know, they're not naked. It's not like it's porn. But our brains are designed to have those images seared into them. And it's a slippery slope from one to the other. But destruction does not just dive there. It's one social media image at a time. It's one Netflix, Amazon Prime, whatever you're streaming of choice episode at a time. And all of these things that we know, it's not what, I would, what God would have for me, but there's something that I just love about it are just drawing us and sucking us, especially around sex, further away from God's plan for our bodies, for our identities, for intimacy, for relationship, and we drift and we drift and we drift. Proverbs 4, 20 to 26 says this. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. God's word is life and health. And then this verse, above all else, guard your heart for everything, everything you do flows from it. And he goes on to say what that means in verse 25. Keep your mouth free from perversity. 20, 20, it's 24. 25, let your eyes look straight ahead. 26, give careful thought to the paths of your feet. The distance between darkness and light can look, can look very close and very subtle. But they're always, the darkness that looks so good is always more destructive than, than your justifications want it to be or than the media portrays it to be. And we know that. But we are rescued from Darkness into light, into life. So question, what are the ways, it's not going to come up, what are the ways the decisions that you are making daily, hourly, or maybe weekly, that you know are cracking the door back open to darkness? if you've been saved and brought into light. (coughs) 
I love the reminder that my friend, I think I told you guys about this a few months ago, that my friend has on his bathroom mirror, a friend of mine in Dubai. When he goes, stick it up there, Glenn. So when he goes to bed at night or gets up in the morning, it simply says, I don't even know what it's written in, just massively across his mirror, Jesus is better. What is the thing I want today? I, I, my body's actually craving today the decision I might want to make, the thing I want to do. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. I love that. We've been rescued from darkness into light. Is that what you need to hear today? Second thing Paul says, look at Jesus. Verse 15 simply says this, the Son is the visible image of the invisible God. And I think this is so important because this is something we all struggle with. How do we possibly comprehend, relate to, pray to, there's a ceiling up there, speak to uh, the incomprehensible, holy, awesome, powerful, creator God of the universe. How do we do that? He spoke and poof, we've said this so many times, he spoke and the universe flowed out from his words. And you are, as I was Googling this this week, you are a speck of dust on one of a, there's not a, I didn't, I didn't find a number for this, one of a gazillion planets. Mathematicians, that's not a number. Circling one of, stick the next one up, circling one of 200 billion trillion stars in one of 200 billion plus galaxies. That's one galaxy. Where are you there? Where, sir, where, where are you there? Where am I there? How do we, the speck that you can't even see in that picture, in that picture, if you step back to the universe, you wouldn't even be able to see that galaxy. How do we, the speck of dust, relate to the God above it all? And Paul, in this chapter, reminds us exactly how. Look at Jesus. The person of Jesus puts this tangible flesh and blood and scale and beauty to the incomprehensible infinite. He contains it for us. And Jesus wasn't, you know, so was Jesus really God? He was the son of God. But it, was, it said he is the visible image. He is the visible image of the invisible God. So if you want to understand God, which will constantly grapple with that, look at Jesus. Read about Jesus. Explore the Gospels and see him again and again. The visible image of God was incredibly relatable. People flocked to him. People wanted to spend time with him. They wanted to eat with him and drink with him and chat with him. They wanted to invite him to their houses. The people that were just normal, or in fact, the people that we think of as worse than us, the worst, the messiest, the most sinful, those were the people that flocked with him and wanted to spend time with him, and that were welcomed by him. The creator of the universe 
made those people feel totally welcome while he convicted them of their sins. There's a dichotomy. I love the story of Zacchaeus who hops up the tree and then Jesus comes down and says, I'm going to your house. And Zacchaeus goes, brilliant. And he invites him and joyously he's convicted of his sin to the, to the point of having to part with almost all his money to give it back to the people he'd robbed. How does that work? Conviction and bankruptcy and joy all wrapped up in one. But that is what the Son of God did to people. And Jesus didn't condemn the sins and errors of those messy, broken people who knew they needed him. But he did condemn the errors of the Pharisees and the religious leaders who thought they were good enough for him. We have the contrasting stories of the Samaritan woman who had so many marriages, and Jesus has this amazing conversation. And then the woman uh, that caught in adultery, who he actually says to her, I don't condemn you, but turn from your life of sin. He has this amazing welcoming relationship, and yet we see over and over again the relationship with the Pharisees where he seriously condemns their self-righteousness. And Jesus gave us this incredible picture of a father who we know is running to his son as soon as his son turned back to him. And yet we also know that Jesus just let people walk away sometimes. The rich young ruler wasn't ready, and he just walked away, and Jesus didn't know, but let me tell you the story again. This will be better. If you do this, he just lets the rich young ruler walk away because his pride won't let him depart with what he has. And Jesus shows us that this incomprehensible God also was willing to brutally, and we know this sacrificially, give his life to reach down to his creation who had run away from him, who had turned away from him before they even wanted anything to do with him. Jesus gives us an incredible picture of God. Do you find it hard to relate sometimes when you're lying in your bed at night trying to shout words at the ceiling to the king of the universe? Get your Bible open. Dig into the stories of the Gospels. As you read about the Son, you can't help but be attracted and challenged and amazed and, and warned and awed and want to know this guy that is the vision, that is the visible image of God. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Is that what you need to hear today? Look at Jesus. And then there's the final thing. Well, he says a lot more, but it's the final thing I'm going to tell you. The final thing that Paul says that is um, so against our 21st century human minds. It's not about you. Remember the speck that you couldn't even see in that picture? 
verse 16 to 19 says this. All things have been created through him, Jesus, and for him. For him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This life is not about you or me. In fact, it's, it's not at all about you or me. Let me put that in a bit of context. But you, you are an invisible speck in a timeless expanse. And you were created for him to allow the universe even to see the love and the glory and the compassion of God. You were created for him. And my 21st century mind, and probably every mind in the whole history of time, that thinks all of life is about my rights and my freedoms and my choices and my identity and the way I want to do things, can't and was not willing to allow God to, to hold that place in my life. I love this example from this week in our Christian sexuality course. Um, There's a lady on it who spoke about her kids, and we all know this is a story you could tell over and over again. But she said that if my daughter had her way, she would eat cotton candy and sugary cereal and watch Disney Plus all day long. Yep, all three of my kids. But she said, but I know that's not the way to life for her. I know that, in fact, is a way to death. If I let her do that, those teeth that you can't even see would fall out of her head and that face would get even more disgruntled. She's at the end of the cotton candy going, oh, I bit off too much. <laughs> so as a parent, if we know that, that there's boundaries and rules and ways we need to give our children and we're minutely wiser and, and more experienced than they are, how much more is God above and beyond us. How much more are his ways better than our ways? But by definition, who knows the way for your life? And yet, the most awesome, incomprehensible being made you. The one who wants to show you his way passionately created you. And he says stuff like this. Genesis 1, 26, I made you in my image. Universe speaker makes dust in my image. I knit you together. I love how intimate that expression is. I knit you together in your mother's womb. And I know, Luke 12, I know the number of hairs on your head. The universe maker stooped down to the speck and became lowly for you. 
He became poor for you. He faced rejection. We know the story. It's so bland almost in her head. He faced rejection and mockery and torture and death for you. To rescue you from darkness to light. And we're going to see him one day. Maybe all together if the world ends now or individually as we all pass from this space. And as, as I was thinking about this this week, I think there's going to be two genres of emotions that will go through humanity's minds as we meet the king. As we enter, and however that's going to look, and however much time it's going to take, but as we enter into the throne room of God, there can only be on one side a sense of like shock and heartache and like exasperation and brokenness and frustration and how did I, as I look on you, how did I possibly miss this or how did I possibly reject this or how did I possibly not respond to that or why was I so blind or maybe even anger, why did that person who knows about it not tell me about this? How else are you going to feel if you don't know him? And a whole section of humanity will face the king of kings and not be able to be received by him. And I can't, you couldn't even put into words what that will look like. Or there will be a section of humanity that will have a combination of awe, like I can't believe I'm, I'm here and it's okay that I'm here. And joy, I'm here. And fear, probably, I'm not even sure if I should be here, but Jesus is standing beside me, so and wonder, and amazement, and thankfulness, and I thought, I wonder if for a long time we'll just be going, thank you, Jesus. I see the Father now, and you, and thank you, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, and I wonder how long it will take for our sense of amazement, maybe eternity, to run down. But there's only those two things when the speck faces the creator of the universe. And yet we're consumed by our own thoughts and our own desires and our own needs and our own days. And part of that is all that stuff has to happen. So it's, this is the challenge of life, but we need to get ground into our psyche that this stuff is not about you. And it's not about me. Everything has been created by, formed by, and made for Jesus. For his glory and for his honor. The way you respond to your boss on a Tuesday afternoon is for Jesus. The way you treat your colleagues is for Jesus. The way you talk to people or listen to people is for and about Jesus. The way you respond to criticism or abuse is for and about Jesus. The way you use your time and your money is definitely about Jesus. And maybe most of all, the way you can forgive when someone has offended you, even brutally 
or the way you can ask forgiveness when you're the person who is the offender is about Jesus. Because all of those things in every action in your life, by the grace of God, will either point people toward the universe-speaking God or point people away from him. Your life is about Jesus. Did you need to hear that this week? Come on up, Josh. You were rescued from darkness into light. But that looks so subtle. But you're called to light. You're called to love. You're called to abundance. Don't let the subtleness drag you down. Look at Jesus. God's huge and vast and invisible. But we have this amazing picture of him. And this is not about you. It's about the King of kings and Lord of lords who happens to adore you and want to call you out of the mess you've created through the life and death and resurrection of his son into life. And I pray, Lord, um, that you will help us see that. I pray you'll help us hear your word. And I pray you'll give us a perspective of eternity that we desperately need perspective of you that we desperately need. Jesus, I pray in your holy and awesome name. Amen.